of the Mao Mao, this oath will kill me. If I am called in the night and refuse to come, this oath will kill me. If I see anyone steal white man's property, I must help him. I must hide what he gives me and say nothing, or this oath will kill me. The whole system in this country, the economic system, is such that uh, jobs are scarce. Automation is limiting jobs. It's, it's, it's decreasing jobs. And uh, if autom as automation eliminates the job opportunities, legislation will not create job opportunities. All it will do is bring about friction and hostility between the two races. You, you see, there will be no uh, progressive revival if black uh, folks are not deeply involved in it. I will obey all orders of the Mao Mao, or this oath will kill me. Shout out to Jim for putting that together. I love that intro. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Mau Mau Hour with the one and only Pascal Robert. On this show, Pascal interrogates a topic that has been on his mind and something usually that makes him unusually perturbed and, and uh, one that gets under both of our skin is what he's going to be talking about today. The idea that identity politics was a creation of the left and then co-opted by elites to serve the bidding of capital, when in reality, that's exactly why elites created the idea in the first place. <laughs> there was a quote I recently read in a 1970 essay from the late civil rights activist and socialist, Bayard Rustin. I know to some Rustin's reputation is not a good one since the later years of his life, he was an FBI snitch and made a bit of a right wing turn. But that doesn't mean that everything he said was able to accomplish was all for naught. In this 1970 essay titled Socialism or Moralism, he ends it with this very statement. You can psychoanalyze every white person in the United States until he comes out pristine, pure tomorrow morning, filled with love for black people, and that will not provide jobs for blacks or build housing. That is a political task which we must face. Now, let me bring in the man of the Mau Mau Hour, the one and only, the Pascal Robert. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. And peace and greetings, M. Toussaint. She's on Listen, there's music you got in the background there. What is that? This is whatever the system throws out because it's for the AI generated, so we don't get dinged. Also with us today, of course, is the Headless Faces Voice of Reason. You may know her from her new essay in Sublation magazine, M. Toussaint. Hello, hello. So good to be here with my fellow celebrities. That I am on par with. <laughs> well, you're a bit. I, I don't know how well. I think your article is doing way better than mine. I told everybody. That's why. <laughs> like, everybody, Catherine, I did a thing. <laughs> Catherine Lugos, Catherine Lugos, that title. You, you, <laughs> you did a clickbaity with the title. 
my mind. Yep. I was like, no, it was. If you're a real Guns N' Roses fan, then you know. But uh, yours, I was reading yours today before the show. I actually read. Pascal had recommended to me to read Adolf Reed's piece in Nonsight, and uh, I hadn't got around to it. And then I was talking to Paul Prescott last night on uh, on social media, and he sent me he sent me Adolf's piece, and I sat down last night and read through it, which takes some some parts of the Rustin essay that I read and, and definitely some other things Rustin wrote. So I think it is on par with uh, with what Pascal is going to be talking about. And also, a lot of what you hear today will also be part of an essay that Pascal has coming out soon. True indeed. And I did read the Adolf Reed piece. I think I told you about the Adolf piece. You did. Mm-hmm. Well, for those of you who don't know, one of the things that I am very, very much fixated on on this revolution podcast and have been fixated on in my writing for several years is the way in which and the role of class within communities of color and how they are used by the power elite to maintain a politics of containment. And one of the things that I found disappointing in the book Elite Capture by Olifemi Taiwo. I hope I'm pronouncing his right his name You're correctly. You're doing way better than I do. So props mm-hmm. to you for getting that far. Is that the book really does not go into detail into the origins of this specific strategy of the ruling class and attributes the concept of identity politics to the Kumbahachi River Collective. Whether the term identity politics are not initiated from them, the concept of using black elites as a buffer class to maintain social control of black and brown people goes back to the 19th century and has been a tool of elites, not only with black people, it was done with Native Americans, it was done in Hawaii, it's been done all over the third world, it's been done all over Africa as well. But one of the things that we have to understand is that the key linchpin in the effectiveness of American capital or Western capital in being able to create a buffer class to maintain social control is the world of capitalist philanthropy. And one of the things I found particularly disappointing about Mr. Uh, Taiwo's book is that he really goes into kind of objective platitudes about elite capture, but he doesn't go into the history of how the foundation world and the philanthropic world from the 19th century, things like the Peabody Foundation, the Rosenwald Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, have been intertwined with the lives of communities of color domestically and abroad to create programs that allow the development of international capitalism and make sure that this kind of buffer class is elevated to work at the behest of the elites. And what ends up happening is that, and I can understand, by the way, Jason, why so many people have suggested that we have Mr. Taiwo on the show and why they think that his analysis would be simpatico with ours because he uses the the quotations of people like E. Franklin Frazier from the Black Bourgeoisie. He discusses Carter G. Woodson's uh, discussion of the miseducation of the Negro. He mentions Emil Cabral. There is, and he also mentions Fanon. 
there is a patina of assumption that he really, really analyzes the way class works amongst communities of color and amongst black people. When in reality, all he does is just cite the commentary of those individuals and doesn't use it to use it to make a contemporary statement about movements like Black Lives Matter, which he praises, about the, the role of academics, which people like um, Walter Rodney said, are as, as much as enemy of the people, Black academics are as much as enemy of the people as whites till proven otherwise, and basically makes it seems like there is this, uh, this, the superstructure of society makes it so elites are able to do this because they control the various structures of society. And as a result, it's easier for them to create these kind of, these functions without any particular detail about how, particularly on the left, the foundation world has been one of the main ways in which capital has been able to maintain control of not only the politics of people of color, but the politics of the left overall, the Ford Foundation finances, all types of, of left activity. Some of the TV shows that we watch on the left regularly are financed by them as well. And the disappointment I have with the book, it's not that, I mean, the it's not that I, I don't think that Mr. Tywo's intention was malicious. It's just I felt that his analysis was very milk toast in that it did not really get to the ways in which and the mechanisms of how exactly the foundation world and the philanthropic world really actually infiltrate and create this buffer class through educational institutions through financing movements, through financing organizations, and through financing the media mechanisms that actually allow them to, to, to function. And one of the reasons why I think that he does this is because it strikes me that he is more interested in an identitarian plea to give credit to individuals because of whether their gender or their sexual orientation for being participatory factors in movements than actually interrogating the fact that, listen, the Kumbahashi River Collective were a bunch of academic elites. They were not exactly the proletariat. You know, many of these people that you're talking about, Black Lives Matter, these women were career foundation working NGO employees before they started this, this hashtag. Let's talk about the way in which the people that we call quote unquote organizers are oftentimes trained by the foundation world to actually control the vision that we have in these so-called movements. Let's talk about how we have people who are getting foundation money today in aspects of left media that, you know, that asks, well, why is it that people are actually getting this kind of this kind of cash based on what they're talking about? And part of the problem that I have with Mr. Tywell's analysis is that he himself is an ivory tower elite and he doesn't interrogate his own class biases. He doesn't talk about who are the foundations that have paid for his research. You say, who has financed his trips abroad? What kind of think tanks is, is he participating in? Didn't he just get a big grant? He might have. I'm not sure. 
you know? Yeah, he got uh, how much did he Tucson? Can he look that up real quick? Sure. He got one of those grants. I can't remember which one he got. You know, in other words, what I'm saying is that the, the whole attempt of this book to talk about how elite capture works. Listen, if you want to read a book that is a much better assessment of elite capture and how the foundation world historically captured a certain element of the left, particularly the black left, read Karen Ferguson's Top Down. Top Down is a great book. Top Down is a book that talks about how the Ford Foundation from the late 1960s to the early 1970s infiltrated black nationalists and black power organizations and financed them to neutralize and socially control the way in which black political thought and black politics actually developed. And in Top Down, she explains that race first and black nationalist ideology actually worked in simpatico, actually worked in agreement with the agenda of the Ford Foundation as a means of actually containing the social and political aspirations of Black people. It's a great book. One of the main reasons why I was disappointed in Ty Woe's book is that there is no analysis at all of that type. I mean, uh, uh, if you read Richard Allen's book, uh, Black Awakening in Capitalist America, that's a much better discussion about the role of the Ford, the Ford Foundation. Shout out to Richard Allen because he wrote that book in 1967. And even then, he talks about how the Ford Foundation is coming in to encroach on the, the, the movement of the individuals and actually kind of infiltrating. But none of that kind of level of sophistication is really discussed in elite capture. Instead, we're reduced to these kind of just platitudes about things we, we can do and discussion about movements that existed in Guinea-Bissau and Amilcar Cabral and these people who were, you know, you know overthrew the Portuguese. It's really kind of like this kind of vapid, rad-lib pablum that doesn't get to the crux of the matter that the reason why we have elite capture in the world is because capital is effective and has been since the 19th century of using resources to capture the left ideologically through funding its institutions and mechanism and funding and financing the institutional and educational mechanisms through which leftists get their not only their organization but their resources. Would you say Anon Girdadas had a better uh, critique of elites in Winners Take All? Because even he's critiquing I, elites. I mean, I think that Anon Girdadas at least talks about the foundation world, and he talks yeah. about how philanthropies are really just kind of the crux of the matter. Yeah. You know, I mean, what what really what I what I found really problematic about. I mean, listen, I'm not trying to to uh, antagonize Mr. Taiwo. I'm sure he's a decent guy, whatever. But I found the book so particularly empty in terms of actual analysis of, yeah, he's got a couple of foundation. Uh, foundation uh, MT, can you, can you tell us the, uh, the grants that this man has gotten? Sure. <clears throat> His CV's online, just so you know, that's where we're getting this from. So we have the Doyle Fellowship. Let's see. Gender and Justice Initiative, Georgetown Environment Initiative Grant, and Summer Academic Grant. You can buy a lot of Afro picks with those. 
Yes, you can. Yeah, I mean, so listen. I mean, listen. Let's be frank. I mean, this 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 brother is on the foundation tent, just like the Black Lives Matter types and a few other types. What so do you it, say to people though, Pascal, when you know they think he's some sort of uh, Marxist? Well, listen, man. This we have this kind of new version of Marxism, this Cedric Robinson Marxism that, I mean, he uses the word racial capitalism like 20 times in a book, which is like, you know, capitalism is only bad because it affects black people kind of analysis. And I think that, I think it's kind of crap. I think it's basically an, an, uh, an attempt to create an analysis. I mean, capitalism is racialized by the nature of primitive primitive accumulation accumulation. Why do I need to use this phraseology of racial capitalism? Like what 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 is the particular point? It's just I'm not a particular I'm not a fan of that analysis at all. And I think that he I think he's a radlib. I think he's I think he's a radical liberal. I do not think he's really a dialectical materialist. I I my position is this. He does not get to the crux of the matter, of the nature of the way in which the foundation world corrupts the left by bankrolling it and creating the real elite capture by financing. I mean, you know, I'm not saying we need to get into, you know, Soros conspiracy because I understand the connotations of that. But the fact that we have a history here, you know, the, the, the whole history of historically black colleges and universities. Read the education of the blacks in the South by James Anderson. These schools were bankrolled by the philanthropies to neutralize the kind of educated blacks and black kinds of education blacks in the South really wanted for their children and give them us inferior industrial education. In the autobiography of, uh, of E. Franklin Frazier, which I've quoted here several times, there's a quote in that book in which the in the book the author says that um, the Rosenwald and Rockefeller foundations in the early 20th century were founding were financing the graduate education of the talented tenth to keep them away from socialism and Pan Africanism. Oof. Well, let me ask you this: What is your critique on the Cumbie River Collective? Because my position is. I'm sorry, Jason. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, Adolf wrote about it in his recent uh, non-site article, and and I actually read the book, and um, didn't really get the hype, but it, it definitely seems like you know um, there's a lot of reflection as if this is a history that was denied to people, but these people only met like two or three times in a how many year period, like. Five, ten year period? I mean, I, my position is that I don't think that we can call a group of women meeting to talk about politics a political movement. It's I mean, it was I mean, I I don't necessarily know if anyone can explain how the Combahatchee River Collective was a political movement. Are we saying it was a movement? Was it a phenomenon? Was it an organization? Was it a club? What what exactly was? I'm not trying to deny the importance of that phenomenon. But I, I have not read anywhere where anyone's explained that it had a long-term strategic impact on the political reality of black politics at that time in this country in any way. As a matter of fact, I find it to be one of the identitarian mechanisms that people who want to play identity politics like to elevate to validate their identity politics. 
instead of interrogating why a women, a group of women who have their own class biases, when there were other ra more radical constellations of black women, by the way, are always elevated. Is it because they were lesbians? Is it because they were elite to a, a certain education, educational pedigree? I mean, it, 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 this name is always elevated because, again, people with a certain identity politics agenda feel that at this particular time with certain, you know, identities are being elevated for certain political reasons, we have to give voice. We have to give voice. Why do we give voice for people who didn't change anything? Why? Well, they, were pointing, out, they were pointing out that, you know, different identities navigate through the world of racism differently. Well, how does that affect the actual real world consequences of political life? I mean, there's a reason why I started the show off with that uh, Bayard Rustin quote. You know, so the, the larger point I'm trying to get to here is that there is a whole series of left posturing intellectual foundation finance work coming out of a lot of academics. Don't forget. Walter Rodney said that black academics are the enemy of the people until proven otherwise. Coming out of academics that I question because my point is, how exactly is this changing the status quo and how are you disturbing the function of capital? Particularly when you and yourself are being financed by the foundation world anyway. Toussaint, do you have something to add? I wonder if the word movement has a different meaning now. It seems to have grafted onto hashtags. So if you have a successful hashtag, then that's a movement. Mm. There's a rapper who said in one of his songs, a movement is two men in a truck. It doesn't mean what it used to mean at all anymore. A successful no. hashtag is a movement now. I mean, Black Lives Matter proved that. Well, not even Black Lives Matter. I mean, you have a wedding and you have a hashtag for people to put pictures of the wedding onto Twitter and social media, and that is a successful hashtag as well. Well, this is what any I'm, kind of branding uh, exercise. Well, this is what I'm getting into with with the piece I'm writing, the new piece I'm writing for Sublation. It should be out next week. Is a lot of people that you know proclaim to be leftists are they the neoliberals that they proclaim to be so much against? Because there's a lot of me, me, me in uh, in this um, hashtagging world of, of movement building, quote unquote. I mean, I mean, listen, man, I think that this is kind of like digital showcasing, digital showmanship, you know, in that, you know, you say you have a movement just because you have 20,000 followers on Twitter or whatever, or you got, you know, 150,000 people watch your YouTube. That's not a movement. Where are the bodies in the street? Where, where are the names of the people Where's that the are following? Paying members? Where are the dues world. paying members? You know what I'm saying? Where, the, or where are the grassroots element to, uh, attempts to mobilize? You know, I think that this whole attempt to create the notion of movement, I mean, it's, it's just as ridiculous as me. The people are talking about saying things like, we're in the third reconstruction right now. We're in the third reconstruction? What are you talking about? How well is that working? People say that all the time. We're in the third reconstruction right now in America. How What's is it the working? Second? The second was the 60s, and the first was the one in the in the 18, in the 19th century. The real uh, one? 
<laughs> the real one. <laughs> <laughs> Omar asked the question, where are the attempts to capture power? I mean, it's hard to capture. Wouldn't you wouldn't you guys agree that it's hard to capture power when you're constantly having these these kind of identity battles? And the one thing I read when you know in reading the Combahee River Collective P or book and also reading the little bit of Tai Wo that I did read and before I, I got it for you, Pascal, to write a review on <laughs> and our several uh, discussions with Teray, it's never really about power. None of this stuff is about power. There's something to be said about yelling at white people and, and people that pay for that. You know, Rustin, again, Rustin called that out in the 60s, talking about you guys want to pay Kwame Ture $2,500 to speak and yell at white people, telling them that they're, they're bad people. I mean, listen, I, I, my, my whole point is that where is the politics? Where is the politics behind this stuff? Where is the means in which this ends up a, a battle to contest for distribution of goods, services, and resources. They're, 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 they're getting it. They're distributing it through foundation money. <laughs> I mean, William Darity has no problem taking this money, or Sandy Darity. Clearly. I think it has a lot to do with capitalism. As the poet Neo said, I'm a movement by myself. <laughs> But I'm a force when we're together. You see what I'm saying? He is successful on his own. And mm-hmm. that is a movement. But, but in a power couple, he is a force. Well, how do you feel, Toussaint, about the need to chastise white people constantly? Be it through Robin D'Angelo and people go, oh, well, that's not real. But then you get the Taiwo book, which is just an angrier version of the same thing. I don't know. I think um, I have a friend who's, who's white. It's true. Um, (laughs) (laughs) She's, she's very into psychology and, and she always wants to know what she does not know. She wants Mm -hmm. the veil lifted as she says, Mm -hmm. but I think that there's, there's so many things white people know you might think you have to tell them something, mm-hmm. but they know, they know what dinner with their family is like. They know what uh, all the different perspectives on race. They, they know these things. What are you going to tell them? They should mm-hmm. be telling us stuff. <laughs> but what if one comments on your hair and says you speak so well? <laughs> God, as long as you don't touch my hair, <laughs> we're good. <laughs> And then, and then, what if you walk down the street and then, like, an old white person, uh, like, locks their door as you walk by? Doesn't I don't that mean know. that all those microaggressions add up into one mighty aggression and bam, school shooter? Those microaggressions add up to a mighty aggression. Good grief. That math. <laughs> Is that like the formulas we had at the live show? Yeah. <laughs> I can't say I've experienced that, but for for the racism that I know that I've experienced, the, oh, this is uh, such a good report that you did on this book, 
um, did basically did you plagiarize it? Like, <laughs> <laughs> if I if I buy this book, is this all going to be on the back of the book? Um, that sort of thing. Uh, what was the question? I'm sorry. <laughs> the question was, do the microaggressions that you deal with in white America mm-hmm. um, uh, get, get you so much in a tissy that it causes one my, major aggression? I think there's an issue in, in allowing it to become a major aggression. Mm-hmm. Um, microaggressions, I should hope that you're involved in some project that has to do with power that allows you to brush off more microaggressions. It seems like the people who are the most upset about those things are not engaged in any project of any group to try to make anything better. It's about so personal it, testimonials. Is this just moralism? Hmm. I, mean, I mean, listen, my position is, is that, you know, racism exists throughout the world in all societies. And I don't think that we should act like it doesn't exist. But at the same time, racism is a tool of capitalist oppression in American society. And when you are an elite who happens to be black, it's easier for you to isolate yourself from it than someone who is poor. Well, what if a cop pulls Taiwo over when he's trying to buy some more Jordans to go with his pick? That may happen. You realize statistically the likelihood uh of someone who has a certain level of education and wealth getting an interaction with the police compared to a black man who has no high school school education is like Mm. 30 to 1. Well, let's just say it happens. Let's just say he's driving and uh, maybe his tags are expired. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe if he has no brakes and he has to stop his car like Fred Flintstone. His, His brake lights are out. Maybe every, time he gets to, every time he gets to an intersection, he has to scream, no brakes, no brakes. <laughs> He's stopping like a Flintstone. <laughs> so so let's say he has a, a run in with the police. Then he can therefore say, hey, racism. I got racism, on because the cops pulled me over and they uh, they treated me mean. I mean, it, it might be racism. It might not be racism. I mean, yeah, I can't, I can't say. I'm not going to say that this cat has never experienced racism in his life. It's very, I mean, I'm sure he has. But what I'm saying is that that, to me, that's less important than the political reality that is necessary to change the material of pe- material condition of people who are suffering disproportionately because of their race, but suffering overall because of capitalism. This is my problem. I want to make this abundantly clear. And this is why I don't like racial capitalism. And this is why I don't like these radical analysis for people who act like they are, or say they are Marxists, but use this kind of radical analysis. The perception that I get from these people is that the only reason they don't like capitalism is because black people are the ones at the bottom. And if black people weren't the ones at the bottom, they wouldn't have a problem with capitalism. And to me, Capitalism is problematic because it requires anybody to be at the bottom. Not just because it requires black people to be at the bottom. Does it require black people to be at the bottom? I'm sure there's some Native Americans that would disagree with you. Right. Well, I think black Native Americans are disproportionately largely at the bottom, but in terms of the perception, in terms ah. of numbers. I'm sure they would listen, shoulder nudge you like, hey, brother. <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't know about you at the bottom there. 
we finally got him to stop calling that team the Redskins. And I've had these conversations with people who were like, well, you know, I, you know, this is this for me. This is about this. You know, I don't care about the white poor. I don't care about any other. I was like, okay, if you don't care about other, if, I mean, what kind of anti-capitalist are you? What kind of socialist, or communist, or Marxist, or whatever term you want to use are you? If you're gonna say you only care about capitalism because of how it affects your particular demographic, is that the nature of why you actually do this? Because for me, my opposition to capitalism is was I was introduced to this kind of analysis, to be totally honest, of course, because of how I realized capitalism affected brown people, people of color. But my antagonism to capitalism is because I realized capitalism affects poor, poor working class white people just as badly, just as badly as it affects poor people all over the world. And it, it requires poverty. Then do you think they really dislike capitalism? I think they dislike it because it doesn't work for people who look like them in their opinions. Maybe they do like it. It's just that one little thing. Just that little, a little microaggression that capitalism has against them. If we just get rid of that, they like it. I think they like it. I think they like being elite too. I definitely believe they like being elite. I think they like that foundation money too. Fat back and foundation money. Fat back. I wonder if there's a higher caliber of fat back. <laughs> you need a chef on the show. You know, capitalism does require a reserve army of labor. That's absolutely correct. Forty percent of the people who are on welfare are non-Hispanic whites. Mm-hmm. So, I think that uh, we are going to open up the phone lines. Yes. Jason is calling in right now, and then I'm going to call in, and then we'll get started. Are you in, Jason? Jason, yeah, but oh, Jason's again, the the point that I'm trying to convey is to not. I need you guys to talk. The point I'm trying to convey is to not to deny that yes, Native Americans experience racism, or Latinos experience racism, or Black people experience racism under capitalism. I understand that. That's absolutely correct. But that does not mean that capitalism does not require a surplus reserve army of labor of people who happen to be white as well and that fighting capitalism is about making sure that the reserve army of labor the poor the lumpen proletariat the proletariat of all classes and colors are humanized and given a chance at equitable quality of life if you guys want your voice to be heard if you have something to say about what Pascal is saying. If you agree or disagree or have a question you would like him to elaborate, feel free to call in 626-873-8658. The phone lines are open now. Toussaint, say something witty. Oh, well, let me ask you why. Why do you care about class? Because I feel like I've listened to... uh, a few interviews by Charlemagne the God dealing with <laughs> politics where 
it just seems to be this thing hanging in the air. Why would anybody care about class over race? It's got to be about race. Come on. I don't believe that you should care about class over race or race over class. Race is a form of class exploitation under capitalism in that race makes an assumption about all black people being in a class that is not correct. It, in other words, it pauperizes blackness and mm -hmm. otherizes it unjustifiably. Well, I think we have a call. Um, someone would like to talk to you, Pascal Robert. Um, go ahead, Toussaint. Caller, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Hello. This is Shirley. I'm calling from Indianapolis. Hello. Shirley, Happy New Year. Hi, Pascal. How are you today? I'm fine. Happy New Year to you. I'm sorry. Say that again. I said Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. That's right. This is my first time speaking to you guys since the New Year. So let me just get into my question, because this uh, your discussion has a lot of um, thoughts going through my head. Now, are you suggesting that people who claim to be anti-capitalist, Black people who claim to be anti-capitalist, are really only anti-capitalist because Black people tend to be the victims or on the uh, on the bad end of it? I would are not say that. I would not say that about all black people who are anti-capitalist. I can't read people's mind. But I do believe that there are some okay. people there are some people whose opposition to capitalism is only rooted in their racial analysis of black people suffering disproportionately from it. I would not make that allegation to all black socialists or anti-capitalists, but I do believe that I, my instincts tell me that there are some folks that are like that. Okay. All right. I could see that point, but I want to push back because I think, I don't think any self-respecting black socialist would, would, would like believe that like, oh, we're only against this because how it plays out on our end collectively because I think people, I think black people who want to participate or believe capitalism can work for black people, they tend to be like those people who are into that financial literacy stuff <laughs> or those people who were really pushing crypto really hard but now you don't hear anything from them. Do you see what I'm saying? I think yes. they make themselves pretty clear that they believe in capitalism. Yes, I, I, I agree with that. But also, don't forget, there are various iterations of, uh, you know, this, you have you have all kinds of different socialists or black socialists. You know, you have socialists, you have, you know, revolutionary nationalists. There are different types of people who challenge capitalism for different reasons. My position is not to disparage all black socialists who would say that the only problem with capitalism is that it affects black people. That's not my goal. But I think that some some okay. of this, I believe that some of this kind of uh, rad-lib version of capitalism that I'm seeing, particularly come of, coming out of academics, acad academics in academia, okay. is not really interested in challenging capitalism, but is interested in having more black people participate in the system. 
Yes, and that's what I think. That's what I think it largely is. I don't think those people even claim to be anti-capitalist. I think they are very much wanting or believe they can have black people get a um, a bigger piece of the pie, quote so and so. You know, right? But I think that's kind of not true. Um, I, I just I'm going to say just one thing, and then I'll walk off and let someone else come in. But a huge discussion over the holidays. With some of my some of my family members, they talked about how you know when the New Deal was implemented and all of the programs that really brought the vast majority of the working poor into the middle class. They said, "Why can't that be done for us? Why do we have to embrace socialism or push socialism or go against this whole system that they believe it's it's too much? It's hard to do. Why can't?" You know, there, that was policy. Why can't the same type of policy or, um, you know, reshaping of those policies be inclusive and work for the vast majority of black people? And that was a debate. Nothing came to a conclusion and the discussion still goes on. But that tells you how my family holidays go. <laughs> well, that's good. All but right. You, so you do... thank you for taking my call. Thank you for the call. And I'll talk to you guys soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks, Charlie. I want to address the comment she made because one of the things that's ironic about that is, as we know, we talk about in the show with many of our guests, is that the New Deal comes about as a consequence of the agitation of socialists and communists who put so much pressure on the Roosevelt administration that they had to give concessions because they were threatening the function of the state. The problem was because of Jim Crow, the, those benefits did not equally manifest themselves in the lives of black people who were tied to sharecropper agricultural labor, even though there were still significant benefits that did accrue to certain levels of blacks, particularly in the North and working in the industrial sector. And I, I think that if we could have uh a New Deal 2.0, if you will, comprehensively, that would do a lot to alleviate the economic suffering of Black, Brown, Latino, all types of communities. I think that that was kind of what Bernie Sanders was, his project was trying to promote in some ways. But Green I think it would, you know, a Green New Deal or something of that nature, it would have to be comprehensive. It would have to be extensive. And I think they would have to be done in a way to take consideration into those communities that were traditionally dis disallowed to participate in the American economy. Full employment program, like the, full, the uh, federal jobs guarantee program that was being proposed during the civil rights movement that wasn't able to be passed because of the Vietnam War, the freedom budget for all. The Fed you know, was really going to give everybody a job? The Freedom Budget Bureau was a very, very advanced program that was being uh, proposed by uh, Dr. King and his acolytes, Bear Rustin and A. Philip Randolph, to try to actually expand into a massive jobs program that would have been inclusive to black and brown people, as well as white people, and that would have really, really gone a long way to uh, diminish poverty and unemployment. But sadly, because of the Vietnam War, it never passed. Do we know for sure it was the Vietnam War? There's, there's scholarship to that effect. Okay. okay. 
I wanted to ask you, because you've used this phrase more than once, I wanted to ask you to define Radlib. And do you Radical feel like... Liberal. Radical liberal. <laughs> no, what For some people. Not? A Radlib is someone who was to the left of traditional liberal, but postures like they are challenging capitalism. But in reality, they're usually just presenting the issues of a certain kind of identity or group and really just want to participate in the capitalist system. If I give you an example of someone who I think is a rad lib, um, who do I think is a rad lib? Everybody. There's a lot of people I think are rad libs. I'm not going to name names. I'm going to let them to me to stand that there. Yeah. Because <laughs> for some people, a radical liberal is at least a radical, and that's doing pretty good. Why can't we be friends with them? Are they easily converted into socialists? I mean, would it be because their posture would be to get angry at passive? So, for example, before we went on air, we were talking about the Kamal Bell situation. I think Where, perfect. Kamal Bell is a perfect example of a radical. So Kamal Bell, for those that don't know, he I don't know if he still has a show on CNN or whatever, MSNBC, but um, he's a Bay Area comedian and he has an inner he's from a mixed race marriage and he was in a coffee shop in Berkeley. He's a Bay Area native and he had walked to like the window of the coffee shop where his wife and child were and was talking to them through the window and the coffee shop owner thought he was homeless and like shoot him away and became a big deal and he wrote about it and has a very large platform and that place ended up getting shut down. They boycotted that place and shut down within a matter of months. Yeah, he's a he's a perfect example of a rad lib. You know, social justice warriors who don't channel channel challenge political economy. I think a lot of those MSNBC MSNBC people are rad libs. Mm-hmm. I guess Eddie Glaude's not coming on the show now. I, mean, I, think, I think Eddie Clark would consider himself a democratic socialist. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I'm getting too sounded like, really? Yeah. <laughs> really? Are they difficult to convert into socialists? Uh, I think with, with, a, with a downturn in the economy, I think it makes it a lot easier for them. To, to, I know a lot of radicals became socialists after the 2008 crash. Well, there's there's an article in one of the business magazines that's talking about, I think it's Business Insider, The Economist, that this economic downturn isn't hitting everybody equally. And there's a lot of people that are okay. Yeah, they work from home. Yeah. I think that probably, I think that's truth to that. Mm-hmm. Has the recession really, do we think the recession has really kicked in yet? Not for everybody. Well, and we do know inflation is there. We got what eight dollar boxes of eggs now. Maybe for you. Eggs are expensive, man. Eggs are oh, expensive. Pascal. Pascal eats quail eggs. So. <laughs> that sounds that. like an American problem. <laughs> Shirley said. Shirley said Eddie Glaude is not a radlib. I told you. I think he might be a democratic socialist. I don't know if I would call him a radlib. I don't know. His waves are way too clean to be a democratic socialist. 
He he's sharp. He's he he keeps it. He got wears a nice suit and tie though. Yeah. That brother's got that. He got that Windsor night. The Windsor knot, perfect. Eddie <laughs> <laughs> Glods. Yeah. His waves are way too. He you get seasick looking at Eddie Glods. <laughs> he got those, that Windsor knot. That Windsor knot is perfect, boy. <laughs> every every salt and pepper hair in his in his goatee is like perfectly placed. <laughs> Let me read. <clears throat> let me <clears throat> you okay? read this. Yeah. You can drink it. Sorry, little little frog in the throat. She's got, okay. she got, she got that scotch in the apartment. <laughs> scotch. I like a scotch that's old enough to drink. <laughs> <laughs> we do have a comment from TBR. I think they consider themselves socialists, but they don't actually move or think in solidaristic ways. I think uh, the solidarity piece is really something. Well, for one thing, it's the part, it's one part that grinds my gears quite a bit, but I think it's a big tell if you're dealing with a rad labor or some kind of socialist. Nah, there's some rad libs who will, who will straight out say they like capitalism. But would you say that there's rad libs that pretend to be anti-capitalist? Yes, absolutely. And I think absolutely. that's what we're getting at here. We're not talking about Spike Lee and you know the majority of people in hip hop. We know we're talking about cats with the uh, Black Panther, 1972 Black Power paraphernalia and stance that's kind of stuck in that in that moment. Good point. Elizabeth Warren is a rad lib. Yes. Ah, yes. But to Toussaint's point, if Elizabeth Warren is campaigning on, let's say, reigning in uh, the SEC and Wall Street, is that a bad thing? That's not a bad thing. That might not be enough for someone with my politics. I'm not saying it is or it isn't. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is, you know, listen, man, politics is about what you can get from the system. Some people would say it's about being able to overthrow the system. Well, okay, until we're able to do that, do we agree that we should try to force reform as much as possible to improve the material condition of people's lives? For me, I my go-to on that is what I, a man who I think is more revolutionary than anyone who I think could claim to be, Amilcar Cabral, said that we don't do this because of theories or ideas or big words. We do this because we want to improve the material conditions of people's lives. That's the ultimate goal here. And my question is that if we can, with a radical demand, force concessions by the state and capital to amend their status quo function, to improve the condition of people's lives. Not saying that we surrender then and not continue to push forward, because we should not stop and never surrender. Is that not a good thing? Can we agree that reform on the way to revolution or evolution is a good thing? That's a question maybe for the show. Because, you know, I have comrades on the black left to be like, you know, 
the system cannot be saved. We need revolution. And I How is that going to happen? I said, listen, you realize revolution doesn't guarantee that after the revolution, things are any better. You have to deal with the counter-revolution after that. Maybe even during. Do you know but who agrees with that? Oh. Um, <laughs> Steve, Steve Paxson? Sam Cedar. Sam Cedar agrees with what? Things getting better on the way to a revolution is a good thing. Yeah, in other words, reform until revolution yeah. is not a bad thing. Right. I don't I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think it feels good to to say that that's not true and just say, see, we need a revolution. We just need a whole revolution. But I mean, feels how does good. it but that that's kind of back to what I was saying, like how are you getting your revolution with no organization? It seems Listen, real liberal. Jason, with your nuanced yeah. pill and your complicating narratives. It's just a thing to say, okay? <laughs> Damn it! I'm, I'm, being, I'm being serious. I, f I feel like a lot of people who call themselves socialists and because what does that mean? And when Pascal goes, my politics, this is like I don't know what the fuck that means. You can't do shit. Like what? It doesn't matter what your politics. <laughs> you can't do shit. I don't give a shit. He's what a movement by himself. Yeah. <laughs> you can put on but a cape. He's a force when you're and, together. And slap burglars all day. I don't give a damn. What you slap say. burglars. <laughs> Well, I mean, when I said my policy, I said what I would support. I'm not saying you have to agree with me. I just don't care. <laughs> no, I, I get it. You know what I mean? Like, why Why should anyone think that? Because that goes into the whole, I think that to me is playing into this whole idea of I am the one true leftist. Listen, I didn't support Elizabeth Warren because I didn't believe that she was far enough in challenging the system. I supported Bernie Sanders rhetorically. Mm -hmm. All right, number one, I'm not, a, I'm not a member of the Democratic Party, so I couldn't have voted for any one of them. I felt that Bernie Sanders posited a more direct challenge to the function of capital. Elizabeth Warren, for me, the fact that she came out and said that she's a capitalist and she had no problem with capitalism, that was problematic for me. And I didn't feel that she had, she saw the exigency in challenging the system as extensively as Sanders did. Does that mean that I think that if you support Elizabeth Warren, you're an enemy or a traitor? No. I think she had good power. There's a lot of things she said I supported that I agreed with. But if, if Elizabeth that. Warren was running for president, let's write this. If there was a choice between Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden in a primary, and I was a Democrat, I would have voted for Elizabeth Warren. 2016, would you have voted for Elizabeth Warren? In a primary? Yeah. Against Hillary? Like like if her, if the draft of Elizabeth Warren worked. Oh, yeah. I would have voted. I probably would have. Well, if I could have voted Democrat, I probably would have voted for Bernie. All right. Unless he didn't I mean, drop out. This, again, this is like consumer choices. Like that, this doesn't make one anything it's just damn it jason i like <laughs> cookies and cream and i just have some it's it's that conversation always gets into the again the i am the one and true leftist conversation well it's i would have done this I, I, I did this but i can't do that because i'm this it's like okay but what does that mean in the yeah, but everyone has this everyone has their standards i'm sure there are people that you would not vote for yeah 
I mean, the first time I ever voted, I wrote an African Bambada's name in like 1996. Oh, wow. I can't even handle what you're saying. So. This dude. I mean, you have to understand who you're talking to here. Like I, does that mean I'm the one in true leftist? Because <laughs> I fucking wrote in <laughs> Bambada's name <laughs> in 96. No, you're Radlib. I'm a rap. <laughs> I'm a rap lib. <laughs> You're a radish. <laughs> Good enough. But again, this takes away from like movement politics. This is just talking about consumer choices and why one's consumer choice is better than the others. Well, isn't that what electoral politics has been reduced to? That's the problem. Yeah. Well, that's because there is no move. There are no movements, and there is no left. That that was the whole purpose of me wanting you to read Elite Capture because I felt like it was a useless book. Uh, I don't want to be so hard to say this book is. I I think this book. I knew you were going to be nice. I think okay, let's write this. I think the book is useless in establishing what the problem is with Elite Capture. The book is titled Elite Capture. It doesn't tell you how Elite Capture really works. And who's doing the capturing? Well, Teray always says, you know, it starts from the false premise of the idea of identity politics being this thing that these this book club created. You know, the weaponization of identity to maintain capitalism, which is what I call identity politics, started well before Kambahachi River Collective came up with that name. You called it a book club? Yeah. Okay. So uh, is Elite Capture a doorstop or not? Doorstop <laughs> or not? Quickly, it's not Jason. Big. It's not that big of no. a book. It's not really going to stop a, a 176 door. pages. Yeah, it's not How long stop did it take you to read it? Two days. You want to hear something funny? Okay. He's had it for over a year. <laughs> I, read this, I, read, I read the introduction and I knew I didn't want to read the book. So you do not recommend that others read the book. Read top, get top down from by Karen Ferguson. Oh, they can read the book all they want. I would never tell someone not to read something. Get top down by Karen Ferguson. Okay, I'm lying. Don't read the Turner Diaries. <laughs> oh man. That's the most radicalizing book ever. Apparently, right? I mean, that dude blew up a whole government building over it. Nobody's blowing up. What government building's getting blown up over Elite Capture? It's just the title is really good. It is. I like the it. The title and and uh, and the posturing is uh, is what it's posturing. People. It is a disappointment. The book is disappointment. The book is a disappointment, and it does not live up to the title or what it promises to do. What did it promise to do? The promise to explain what elite capture is and how to challenge it. Oh, I thought it was going to liberate you. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. What's more liberating, reading that book or Kamal Bell shutting down that coffee shop? They're both kind of rad lib to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if every black person got a free latte, would that have been better than shutting down the coffee shop? Ooh. Now you're talking my language. <laughs> Elante. 
Hello. Like, what, what would you do if that happened? Like, remember a few years ago where Starbucks like uh, wouldn't let those black kids use the bathroom? They like paid for a drink or something in uh, Philly, and people were like protesting. The Starbucks it was like big news for a while. What if Starbucks was like, hey, every black person that comes in for a week gets free coffee? Would that have made you feel better, Toussaint? I think at the time, yes. Just a, a nice little tasty treat. We love our treats, don't we, folks? Look at Pascal does not like Starbucks reparations. <laughs> Would you have taken Starbucks reparations, Pascal? I don't want a check. Okay, if they gave you a check for $4.25 for a cup of coffee. Hey, turn me down. It's a big novelty check. <laughs> Are you turning that check down? Like when you like when you win uh, <laughs> a, a, a contest? Yeah. I just like it that Pascal <laughs> and he looks so disgusted with it. <laughs> People think Pascal is mad because he's reading the comments. So now I'm saying it. Com- I like the comment. We got the best comment chat. On the left, man. <laughs> this guy, this guy came up to me. This guy came up to me in New York. He goes, he goes, Pascal never laughs. I'm like, he laughs all the time. Do you guys I just do. choose to see it? He dances like, guy, too. He's reading the comments. That's why he doesn't make a face. <laughs> Karen Ferguson's book is fifty five dollars on Kindle. Jeez, whoa. Gosh, I didn't pay that much. I got you were a real socialist. You'd make everybody copies, but since you're a radlib, you make them go to Amazon. I got the physical copy. I mean, that's a lot of it's a lot of work. Man. Some people like indoor plumbing. Those people are not <laughs> socialists. If you have indoor plumbing, you're a radlib. Exactly. I, can we disabuse the notion that because you're a socialist, you have to think of vile poverty? The, 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 as socialists, we want to improve the quality of life for everyone, so we all can live. Well, we don't want to require anyone to have to live a vile poverty. Adidas tracksuits for everybody. Tucson. So tell me you don't want a tracksuit. Tell me. You don't. <laughs> this is Michael Brooks socialism. Um, you have to. You have to look like you're having fun at some point. TBR says thank you, Pascal. I'm a prosecco socialist. <laughs> <laughs> Pinky up. The the wind spirit says I'd like to decrease the quality of life for the rich though. What if you became rich tomorrow? What if Uh-oh. the situation was reversed? <laughs> Can I just read the full title of Karen Ferguson's book because it's worth saying? Yeah. Top down, the Ford Foundation, Black Power, and the reinvention of radical liberalism. Of racial liberalism. Sorry about Ooh. that. Pascal, about what if MSNBC paid you $100,000 a year to say racial capitalism seven times on air? I'd take that shit in a minute. <laughs> he don't even need a novelty check. I will be talking about Cedric Robinson like he was the honorable Elijah Muhammad. <laughs> Peace be upon his name. <laughs> 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 Can you imagine this TR just changes everything to the honorable Cedric Robinson? Say so, so, is. you should get kicked. I wonder I mean some I never thought of that. 
We hmm. should get Karen Ferguson on. How can we get is she? I don't even know if she's an academic. The book was solicited. oh, before before we go, I have some good news, Pascal. What's that? Hold on, in, MT, be entertaining while I go get something. Be entertaining. Be entertaining. <laughs> That's wow. a good suggestion, trying to get Karen Ferguson to come on the show. She wrote a couple of articles. She wrote a couple of articles in Jacobin. Did she? She oh, wore, she wrote an article warning Black Lives Matter about taking Ford Foundation money. Ooh. She did. So last year, let's get on the screen real quick. Were you guys being entertaining? We yes, tried. very. Do it again. I want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> That was dope. <laughs> uh, Shirley, I'm glad you're back in the chat. Thank you. I missed you, Shirley. I met Joanna in real life. Mm-hmm. Joanna. That uh, used to be in the chat all the time. She came to the live show in New York. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah I told her I can't stand that close to Asian women. I got all these kids already. She was <laughs> on the West Coast. Mm-mm. Wow. We've been okay. coordinating. What did you say cool. about a board meeting? I said we've been coordinating. Shane. Oh, you've <laughs> been coordinating. Um, you know what's really funny about Cedric Robinson? The original intro to this show. He was on the original intro to this show. Do you remember that? I remember that. It was like Lorraine Hansberry, Cedric Robinson, the Black Panthers. Who else? Yeah, like every black leftist. He, or he, anti- Harrison. Yep. Every black class. We had, we, we, I like that intro. That was a good intro. I like that intro. It was chill. Remember that? You yeah. got a bunch of people I don't know in the current intro. I'm like, who's this guy? Because Gene did it, so it's all these Europeans. Gene purged on the black people. See, that's why. <laughs> it was Gene. No, Elaine Brown is in it. I know. Elaine Brown, uh, uh, Sankara's in it. Uh, yeah. Uh, Luca Cabral is in it. Uh, Huey Newton is in it. Who's the guy that uh, looks really sad? Who's the guy? He looks confused, actually. <laughs> he does have a constant. So I want to, Pascal, I don't think you gave your address to the publisher mm. unless you've been hiding yours. I went to the post office to get the laptop stand that I'm talking to you guys on today, which makes I can have eye contact with everybody. And the book came from the UK because the publisher's out of the UK. There are. What's the name of the publisher? Who published it? Where do I see that? I don't know. Anyway, Joy James in pursuit of revolutionary love, precarity, power, communities. Oh, nice. This is a conversation in this book is a conversation Pascal and I had with Joy James. um, On the real news. Very prepared for. No, okay. Like ready for war that day. I think I, yeah, I, I had there. the conversation down about that interview. I was I was pleasantly surprised with what we were able to discuss with uh, Dr. James, and she enjoyed the conversation so much that she asked us if she could put it in her upcoming book. And page two fifteen on the rise of the black bourgeoisie with Jason Miles and Pascal Robert of This Is Revolution. You guys were representing. 
the black bourgeoisie is that what it was <laughs> your mom <laughs> represents the Ooh, she does your mom has an escalade <laughs> on 12s <laughs> of fact, you, guys can to, you guys can go to youtube and watch that discussion with, with joy james that was a great conversation or you can read the book in pursuit of revolutionary love I'm, we're in a book. That's hey, pretty you guys, dope. You guys said it wasn't a, a happy conversation, exactly. No, it was a great conversation. It was a, it was a good conversation. Well, because was it contentious? You know, was it disagreeable? No, no, it was no, very no. no. Okay, we had no, a lot she, of consensus. Like she was questioning certain theories that she had because she was questioning the validity of Afro pessimism and if it even played a role in oh. helping people's lives. You disabuse her of that that notion well yeah you know it, it was it, she's an abolitionist which i take a lot from the abolitionists um but i really it was a really amazing conversation that's great Ooh, hoo, 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 look Maybe at that a book it's in a i'm so i'm excited so look you guys need to get in pursuit of revolutionary love precarity power communities um we are chapter 13 page 215 i'm super stoked i'm going to start reading this book and i'm not going to read just the part i'm in or will i also don't forget to read toussaint's latest piece about black history month Toussaint is challenging this traditional status quo on black history month somebody and asked you. If you enjoyed what you heard here with Pascal Robert, there should be a piece out next week where he is going to elaborate. Write. Elaborate, thank you. Elaborate. Take a scalpel to elite capture. What is the title of the discussion? Surely the title of the discussion is Jason and Pascal put that shit down. <laughs> okay. Changing lives. <laughs> Oh, does Shirley want to know what was the title of the discussion on YouTube? It was, it was, a, I think that was the name of the show. It's on, it's on the real news. If you look up the real news, this is revolution. The real news the network. Revolution, the real news network, Joy, uh, Joy James. We, Black we, we were contracted to do four interviews with them. We interviewed Adolph Reed, uh, Chris, Chris Hedges, Giannis and Joy, and Joy James. James. Nice. That's a yeah. good it's a good roster there. We were able to make all of those people have uh, an interesting time and Pascal made Giannis very fucking sad. I asked him the hard hitting questions. <laughs> Verifacus is like, thank you for kicking me in my testicles. <laughs> you have a very wide foot, Mr. Robert. Now I have a Pascal. <laughs> the Chris Hedges interview has eighty-seven thousand views. Nice. That was a that was a good talk. I thought maybe that's why Chris Hedges doesn't talk to us anymore. <laughs> mm -hmm. Done with these guys. I, th I think we do. We scare Chris Hedges. We asked some some pressing questions. No, we didn't scare him. We didn't scare Chris Hedges. But he we want you guys to watch it. We were the, fir we were the first time. We were the first time that he was on the real nose for a while. He hadn't been on for a while. Yeah, and now he's got a show on there. 
Yeah, he does. Will he ask us on? It takes a lot to scare Chris Hedges because war is a force that gives him meaning. Because he what? War is a force that gives him meaning. Oh, because war is a force that gives him meaning. What is he, a Jedi? (laughs) I guess so, right? Is he fucking Palpatine? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, Pascal, you are going to write your Elite Capture review. It should be out next week. Toussaint and I have articles up this week. Toussaint, are you writing an article next week as well? No, wasn't planning on it. <laughs> that's, that's, no, Jesus, we're one and done. I'm He's not Haitians. a columnist like you this are. Is what you get from- ah! yeah, I said it, I said it. Please welcome. I want to be known from from now on. Introduce me as a columnist for Sublation. We had a lot of people in the chat today. This is the nice. same ones talking over and over. <laughs> oh, thanks for just ripping that away from me. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Were you, were you, were you on a cloud? You know, I'll just pull you down. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's uh, let's get out of here so we can play this uh, not live for everyone else. So for those of you watching this on YouTube later and not watching this through the Patreon, if you want to be a part of this show live, there's only one way to become a patron. You get access to the Mau Mau where you can call in. And if you like, you can yell at Pascal or you can try to laugh. Should we tweet this to uh, Tywalk? Ooh, you really want that guy to... Uh, yeah, what's he going to do? Lisp at you? Pascal wants that smoke. Ooh. Pascal's a battle rapper. I told you. <laughs> Good night, Shirley. Thanks for the call. Shirley, thank you so much for the call. Thank you guys all for watching. Um, I don't think Tywo cares. Tywo is rolling in the dough. He's just not caring. And that's fine. I've seen CV. Yeah. <laughs> he's, like, uh, he's okay. <laughs> he's okay. He's like, he's like, uh, if you think Kendi is too soft, then you read Taiwo. That sounds right. Kind of like how people are like, I don't understand Radiohead, and then you like get into Coldplay. Oh. That's that's Ouch. how it's just you guys. No, is that the same thing? Really? <laughs> Tech, I never would have put them together. <laughs> Radiohead and Coldplay. Damn. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't I like the day and then you listen to John Mayer. Whoa. No. no? Mm- well, who's on top in that one? I don't understand. Pause, pause. Hey, hey, hey. yo. Um, yeah, this is a lot for me right now. It's a lot. Sorry. Nuance. is none of the greatest guitarists of all time. <laughs> That's the quote of the day. 
like uh, I don't. I'm not really into Nirvana, but I really dig Nickelback. Puddle of Mud, dude. Oh, that's what. Yeah, that's better. That's better. Like oh, Nirvana's too weird, but I really like Puddle of Mud. Nirvana's too sad. Yeah. <laughs> that's how I look at those people. Like. I want something heavier than candy, and someone goes, "You need elite capture," and it's like, dude. Yeah, man. It's like it's like an angry anti-racist, but he's not really that angry. No, but he's, he's not. definitely an anti-racist. He likes. His you're, I want to leave with this question: When you're an anti-racist, do you walk around and just stamp out racism whenever you see it? Stamp, stamp, stamp. Like if a homeless man calls Pascal the N-word. Do, do you like stamp that out with your anti-racism stick? According to my white friend, yes. <laughs> that is what you do. It shall have no quarter with you. Every time you see it, you got to say something about it. She challenges white ladies all the time. Really? Break yes, dancing competition? <laughs> <laughs> Without the cardboard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> This seems like a time for. Oh, no, it's an anti-racism dance-off. Yep. If the, if the checker at the grocery store is a little rude to you, but nice to, like, the Jewish older woman before you, do you have to get your anti-racism stick and shake at them? The anti-racism choice is self-checkout. Ooh. The anarchistic choice is self-checkout and shoplifting. That's how his He's now all his anti-racist friends. His inbox is going to be so flooded. Oh, now you're not an anti-racist anymore, Pascal. <laughs> Anyone just know they call him Mr. Tibbs. Oh God! Don't you dare! That's what happened when I went to Ben Burgess's house. His dad was like, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> brought this colored guy over. Here. Don't you dare bring up Pascal's reason for having starchy shirts. His inspiration. He did a whole show on City Poitier. He did. Right? I did do a show on Sydney Poitier. We need to do a whole show on Young Thug. Maybe Little Baby. That is a huge turn from Poitier to Young Thug. <laughs> Young oh, Thug is an auteur. Turd more than turn. <laughs> Jeez. There's this Little Baby documentary, and I would love to watch it with Pascal. Oh my God! Why you're kicking? We can him discuss the modern myth making. That's what you, That's how you want to do it. With a little baby, yeah. He's he's go, he's about to be goaded. What did he do? Go, goat of what? <laughs> like a a thing. Little someone believes that little baby's the goat of hip hop music. Yeah, well, he's he's about to be. He's he's going to be in the conversation. What did he? You like will if love someone, his. If if someone came to me and sang a song, I wouldn't know it. Like sing one right now. Trip too hard. Something something something. Damn, I don't remember now. 
I shared Antonio. Did you see what I, I shared Antonio Brown? You know the football player Antonio Brown? He was he was rapping on Instagram and it was the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. Oh my gosh. I sent it to Pascal in his inbox because I wanted him to see it directly. So check your Instagram inbox, Pascal. Okay. <laughs> That was nice. That was, that was really, that was a good, okay. You just, you just treated that like macaroni art. Macaroni necklace. I worked so hard to get these memes for you, and you just treat it like macaroni art. I, I want everyone to see how Pascal treats me. He treats me like I'm a child. <laughs> When? Macaroni Where? art is special. Someone yeah. who cares about you has to make it for you. Yeah, just like, buy I that. Put it right here next to the other one. No. <laughs> and the drawing of the family in the house, and we're all the same size. <laughs> Everybody's got big feet. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's stop. Let's stop. Let's stop. Pascal's <laughs> inbox is going to look so bad after this. <laughs> if you guys have any complaints, make sure you send them to P Room. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to read the comment section on this. Thank you, guys. Mm-hmm. And we are Black. That too. Out. If I tell any secrets of the Mao Mao, this oath will kill me. If I am called in the night and refuse to come, this oath will kill me. If I see anyone steal white man's property, I must help him. I must hide what he gives me and say nothing, or this oath will kill me. The whole system in this country, the economic system, is such that uh, jobs are scarce. Automation is limiting jobs. It's, it's, it's decreasing jobs. And uh, if autom- as automation eliminates the job opportunities, legislation will not create job opportunities. All it will do is bring about friction and hostility between the two races. You, you see, there will be no uh, progressive revival if black uh, folks are not deeply involved in it. I will obey all orders of the Mao Mao, or this oath will kill me.